Take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ to John through an angel. Chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those that say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would give life and light to our hearts yet again, that we might understand your word. And for that to happen, we need your Spirit, your Holy Comforter, to work understanding that our eyes would see and our ears would hear. And we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. This may come as no surprise to you, but I was uh, never a particularly great athlete in high school. I mean, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't a particularly great one, uh, which normally was kind of no big deal. You could ride the bench and it'd be fine, except for when I started running uh, track in high school. My track coach, well, I had David Thompson as a long jump coach. My track coach was a former lineman, offensive lineman for the Green Bay Packers. His regular philosophy was, I've never killed a kid yet, I'm not starting today, stop talking and run. That was his philosophy of track. And periodically there would be a day where I guess somebody had drew his ire, I guess in PE earlier in the day or something, but we would show up at practice and he would say, fellas, we're going to have fun today. Which meant what? You, you, you know how to read that in your head, right? The, the answer to that is, were we going to have fun? No. no, of course not. We're not going to have fun. It meant somebody was throwing up, if not everybody was throwing up. It, it meant it was going to be a terrible day, and I, we didn't know what he had planned, but whatever he had planned, it was going to be misery. And of course, being the coach that he was, he had really kind of no general care for our expectations. If you complained, he would say, I haven't killed anyone yet. I'm not going to start with you. Stop talking and run. I've heard that more times than I could probably like to admit. It's interesting if you think about it. Actually, I guess, I mean, Coach was fantastic because his persona was, he was a caricature of a human. He was larger than life. He was this massive guy that if you ever got into trouble, he could help you out in all kinds of ways. But it is really an amazing process of trying to think about how to manage a person's expectations when bad things are coming. Like, do you, do, you, do you tell them all the bad things that are coming? Do you, do you soften the blow? Do you just get it out there and let them fall apart and then we can kind of sort out all the pieces as you go? Or do you walk in like Coach did and say, fellas, we're going to have fun. No, Coach, I'm not going to have fun. You might have fun today. I'm not going to. What is the process of managing expectations with bad news look like? You know, how, how, how does that work? 
How do you exist? Now you think about this like with doctors managing having to, to administer bad news. when they, How do we do this? The good news is that chapter 8, I mean chapter 2 starting in verse 8, we have Jesus doing this with one church in particular. Managing bad news for the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is an interesting place. It's really the only of the seven churches that still stands as we kind of know it today. Izmir, Turkey. Uh, it was at this point, we think, between 200 and 250,000 people large. Uh, it was a very lovely and beautiful town, kind of coming up out of a port, and very beautifully designed, uh, very well-to-do and lovely city. There was, however, at this point in history, one kind of major problem with the town of Smyrna. They loved Rome. Like, loved Rome. Like, not just a little liked Rome, they loved Rome. To the point where, remember this is being written in 95 AD, uh, they even so far as back as like, you know, almost 300 years earlier, they had built a temple to the goddess Rome, Roma in actual Smyrna. In 26 AD, 70 years prior to this, they had built a temple to Emperor uh, Tiberius as a god of Rome. How, how much of a sycophant, a, a, a kiss-up do you have to be to build a temple to the emperor to proclaim him as divine? Smyrna was marked as a town, as a, a town that had basically, they were a toady for Rome, if you know that term. They were a sick fan. They, they were just doing anything they could to make Rome happy. We will please Rome at all costs. Which, you know, when Rome was being good, that wasn't that terrible of a thing to do, I guess. Problem is, by this point in history, remember we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, Rome's not being good. Rome's actually terrible. Domitian's awful, and they're running into tremendous problems. Largely because one of the things that had begun and was beginning to be enforced in other places was they wanted people to swear fealty, to swear obedience to the kind of emperor, to the, the, the idea of Rome. Not simply a pledge of allegiance, but to admit that it's king over their lives. Rome is my God, for argument's sake, I guess. Which, you know, most people didn't have issue with because they believed in all kinds of gods. So adding Rome to the list wasn't really an issue. It was like, well, we already believe in this. We believe in that. We believe in this. We believe in that. Rome, sure, fine. I got no issue with that. I've already got 12. Let's make it 13. Baker's dozen. We're good. Some people, however, did have problem with it. One group of that were the Jews. And the Jews had actually protested this well back earlier, decades prior, and had received a special dispensation to be able to exist in the Roman Empire and not be persecuted for not swearing loyalty to Rome. They were known as having one God, and in fact they were actually mocked for it, but they were given a special permission from Rome in order not to have to swear to the emperor. And as the church began, the Christians were able to hide underneath that authority of the Jews to say, we belong to the Jews, you don't have to persecute us when we don't swear to Rome. The problem happens, though, is in 70 AD, 25 years before this letter is written, the temple is destroyed 
and the Jews get cantankerous with the Christians and basically throw them out. So for 25 years, Christians around the Roman Empire have begun to be persecuted because they will not swear to Rome. They will not swear to the emperor. And in most places, okay, maybe that's not that big of a deal because it's impolite, it's wrong, but okay, we will ignore it. But not when you get to Smyrna. How dare you not swear to the emperor? We have a temple to the emperor right there. How dare you? How dare you? And you can see, well, that created problems, and it created problems fairly quickly for the church to the point where they had hit severe difficulty. I mean, all kinds of difficulty. And this sermon's really going to be a little different. We're only going to look at two things. We're going to look at kind of the reality of suffering and, and the hope in suffering. And it's important that when as we dig into the church here in Smyrna, their suffering was real and serious and intense. Verse 9, Jesus explains to them, he knows what's going on there. I know your tribulation. Interestingly, that's the same construction as tribulation used in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 9, where it's the tribulation here, it's your tribulation. I know your tribulation. I know your suffering. I know that the Romans are persecuting you because you will not swear fealty and swear allegiance to the emperor. You will not bow the knee to him. And I know they're persecuting you. And just as I know that they're persecuting you, I know the consequences of that persecution. When you begin to do the things that are not socially acceptable anymore, that people no longer want to have you around, guess what immediately follows? Your poverty. (laughs) Nobody wants to hire that guy. Here's the guy who's making Rome angry. Here's the guy who won't swear to the emperor. Here's the guy who has the risk of being executed for his disobedience. I'm not hiring that guy. I don't want him working for me. I don't want him hanging out with my children. I don't want him hanging out with my coworkers. I don't want to be associated with him. Maybe they'll think I'm guilty of that too. So the church here is... Under serious oppression, they've been persecuted for their faith. They've been persecuted for taking a stand for Christ. And in fact, it has played out even so far as intense poverty. We know it's bad in Smyrna. We actually providentially have a lot of documents from the church in Smyrna, uh, largely connected to a guy named Polycarp. Uh, remember, Polycarp is not too much longer uh, after um, John, and he's actually the pastor of the church of Smyrna in 1055 when they burn him alive as an old man. I mean, you've got to be really hard up and angry at somebody to burn alive an old man, um, to not show any respect, but Polycarp didn't deny his faith. He has a brilliant statement about the Lord's been faithful to him for 80-something years. He's not changing now, and they killed him. You think, well, maybe that, I mean, that would be bad. But if you're a Christian, that would be bad. At least maybe, at least maybe we could get along with the Jews. The Romans hate us. That's fine. They're pagans. That's to be expected. Our neighbors hate us. They persecute us. Honestly, they're petty. Uh, That's to be expected. But if 
find safety in the Jews, can't we? Oh, no. (laughs) In fact, actually, no, we find out here in the passage, Jesus explains that they've been the victims of the slander of those that say they're Jews. Those that say they're from the genealogy and lineage of God's people. Those that say they are the bloodline of the Old Testament. And yet, here they mock God's people. They speak ill against them. We have this actually historically recorded. Accusations coming out of the church of Smyrna uh, from this region where accusations of Christians being cannibals because they ate and drank the body of their Lord. Uh, Christians having incest because they married their sisters in Christ. Um, Yep, not kidding. Uh, Also, uh, atheists uh, because they only worshiped one God and not the pantheon of gods. Coming out of this exact location, we have the records today. It's amazing. The Jews were jumping in and slandering them and saying, no, 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 they're bad people, these Christians, we don't like them. And they were piling on. It's interesting, Jesus' assessment of them is to say, look, they may be genealogically Jews. They may have the bloodline of Jews. But my kingdom is now no longer defined by bloodline. It's defined by relationship with me. And in fact, though they say they're Jews, they're not anymore. In fact, what they have become is a synagogue of Satan. That is a term and a half, isn't it? He's not talking about here that little middle school phase where they went through that goth time where they thought it'd be cool to worship Satan or something of the sort. He's instead hinting at here are people that have betrayed their very identity. Those that say they would worship the God of the Old Testament but instead worship a demon because they persecute and pile on to God's people. And you think, man, whew, I mean, that is a bad situation. I mean, wow, you've got the Romans after them? Yeah, they're starving to death and then the Jews are piling on top of them and making fun of them along the way? Wow, that's a terrible situation. And this is the point where, you know, if you're in the church today, you'd have somebody come up alongside you and be like, oh, don't worry, I'm sure it'll pass. This too will pass. Or somebody say, oh, don't worry, it'll be all better. Or don't worry, there are other fish in the sea, it'll be okay, you'll be fine. Jesus loves the church too much to say that. Those are all lies. Instead, actually, he comes back and says, guess what? It's just started. It's just started. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer, all that you've been through, by the way. It's not done. It's just starting. Don't be afraid. You're about to suffer. In fact, actually, it's about to get worse because behold, that's the earth shaking. Catch your attention. Make your ears perk up. Behold, the devil himself is about to throw some of you into prison. And we think, well, I mean... It's not that bad. Well, no, actually it is. Prison's a little different back then than it is today. Today we have a massive problem with mass incarceration where we use prison as uh, punitive. You do the crime, you do the time. It is the punishment, the payment for what you do. You do evil, you get said punishment. That is not how it was in the ancient world, certainly not in Rome. (laughs) Prison was the holding cell before they executed you. 
It wasn't that you served, oh, I do my 10 years and I'm out, I'm good. You know, do my 20 years and I'm free, I've paid my debt to society. It was you went to prison and you stayed there till they executed you. It was death row. Every prison was death row. You stayed while your trial was finished, and when it was finished, they killed you. What Jesus is saying here is not, oh, look, you're going to have to do the time, even though you didn't do the crime. You know, six months in prison, you'll be fine. Year in prison, you'll be fine. No. Behold, it's about to get worse because what's coming is death. Rome will get your bodies. Some of you will be thrown into prison that you may be tested. That what you are will be shown for who you are. That the beauty inside will be displayed. In fact, actually, and for ten days you will have tribulation. That this will continue ten, hinting at the fullness. It's not just going to be a little bit. You're going to have some very serious difficulty coming. I love how here Jesus deals with this. How he acknowledges the tribulation that they're in. He acknowledges the poverty that they're in. He acknowledges the slander that they're in. And even addresses the fear of the future. I think that last one is probably the one that I appreciate the most. It's not just diagnosing the pain and difficulty that they're in at the moment, but diagnosing the fear that will be coming. The fear of the unknown is almost always worse than the reality until it happens, I guess. I find this particularly helpful for us as a church because I would suggest that if you look really kind of the American church over the last 50 years or so, we, we really messed up in the 80s. And one of the things that we messed up in the 80s is that we very quietly, without fully realizing it, drank from the well of the prosperity gospel. And we drank from the well of the prosperity gospel and unintendedly, accidentally turned into Job's friends. Where when we see people that are hurting or suffering or difficult, we get uncomfortable. And we say these vain platitudes to just try to make them feel better because we think crying is a wrong thing. I mean, Christianity, it's filled with puppies and kittens and unicorns and rainbows and happiness, right? It's all, it's all cotton candy and gladness, isn't it? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard those kinds of thoughts expressed and things that were like, look, what am I doing wrong that I've got something bad happening? Why does God hate me? What did I do wrong? What, what am I being punished for? That is hinting at its very core, the idea of a prosperity gospel, that God wants me to only be happy, wealthy, and wise in this place. It's Job's friends giving that bad advice to say, this life for Christians is only filled with happiness. The problem is that is an absolute lie. I mean, think about it for a moment. This is, the, I think, probably the most beautiful part about this one. There is no scold or correction to the church of Smyrna. King Jesus looks at the church 
and has nothing to correct them for. How marvelous of an endorsement is that? Here you have Ephesus that's fighting against all of the false teachers and they're this stand for the truth. And Jesus is like, look, you're doing great with that, but you forgot to love me. That's kind of problematic. Here you have a church that's suffering in intense fashion. And Jesus is like, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. You're not doing anything wrong. It's not like you have brought this on yourself by being a fool. It's not like this is the consequences of some secret sin. This is life under the curse. And it hurts. I think this is an area actually where the millennials have been a great blessing to the church. Yes, I'm praising millennials. Note it. File it away. They've done a brilliant job of correcting how the pendulum swung to one side in the 80s to say that American Christianity has to be, you know, happy and glad all of the time. And if you're sad, there's a problem. And if you're depressed, there's a problem. And all the millennials have done a really great job to say, no, look, the reality of the world is we are under the curse. And it is okay if we are creatures of tears. Because that's what Jesus was. He's a man of sorrows, one who was well acquainted with grief. It's okay to cry. It's okay to weep. It's okay to have that deep-seated pain bubble out at times and to fall apart. It's okay. Because I appreciate what Jesus is doing here particularly because he's not marginalizing it. He's not hiding it. He's not embarrassed about how much they hurt. He hits it head on. This is a lesson I think the American church needs to learn desperately. We don't have to be afraid of people's hurts and heartaches. We don't have to be afraid to be known as a church that cries. I mean, you realize that's how Jesus, his first sermon that we have recorded in the, in the scriptures, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. It's okay. We don't need to be embarrassed about that. We don't need to be embarrassed to be a church that feels like we don't function the right way all the time. That our sorrows overwhelm us. It's okay. I think it's interesting, kind of hand in hand with this kind of saccharine Christianity, this cotton candy Christianity, we've had to stop reading the Psalms. And I think actually, I would argue, I think there's a good academic argument here. It's why we stop singing the hymns. Because they hurt too much. To actually really engage the Psalms or the old hymns hurts too much. I mean, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and hope in every way. That's how one of the great hymns starts. You think, oh, this is going to be a happy ending. What does God give? He gives hurt after hurt after hurt after hurt so that he would heal. So that my hope would be in him. 
You see, that's actually the solution that Jesus gives to the reality of suffering here. It's not to just give vain platitudes that don't mean anything. It's not to just have, you know, alphabet soup Christianese words come out and hope that it makes enough sense that the person in front of us stops crying. Instead, he provides a real and genuine solution, which is himself. Look at what he says about himself in the reality of pain. Verse 8, he identifies himself as he speaks. He uses one of the uh, various theological terms that he had given there at the beginning or end of uh, chapter 1. He identifies himself the words of the first and the last. Robert did us uh, a really good favor there. We read that already in the call to worship in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, it's referring to God the Father specifically in light of his omniscience. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the first and the last. He knows everything in between. There is nothing that is not known by God. Here Jesus explains that he is that person himself. I appreciate that. As he goes into a conversation about suffering with the church, he actually knows what he's talking about. It's not that friend who says, oh, I know how bad you hurt, and then begins, you know, proceeds to then immediately comment on how much they have no idea how much you hurt. Here he's Jesus, and he says, I know exactly how much you hurt, and guess what? He knows exactly how much we hurt. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything in between. He knows. In fact, actually, he knows how much it is to hurt because he is the one who has already died. I mean, most of us, that's one of those things that we, whether we like to say it or not, maybe we're we're afraid we won't sound like strong Christians when we say it, but we're all afraid to die in some fashion, aren't we? Jesus is like, I know what I'm talking about. I know what real suffering is. I died. Oh, by the way, death wasn't strong enough. It couldn't hold me. It didn't win. I died, but I came back to life. And I appreciate that too as he begins a conversation about suffering because he identifies one, that he actually knows what he's talking about. But two, he understands and explains that suffering is not bigger than him. Even the worst of suffering, death itself, it's not bigger than him. Hell is not bigger than him. God's wrath is not bigger than him. Sickness is not bigger than him. Abuse is not bigger than him. Those private little mourning bits in our souls that we try to cover over are not bigger than him. Jesus is the one who died and came back to life. I love how as he goes to explain to them how they're hurting, he he presents a little bit of just a kind of contrast right in the middle of it. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But oh, by the way, don't let that dominate your thinking. You're poor. You're starving to death. But you have the fullness of spiritual riches. I think here he's offering a little bit of a corrective for when we go to think about suffering to make sure that we don't just fall down the pit of despair and, you know, flush ourselves away in the toilet of loss. I mean, I'll give you an illustration of this. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with folks where they'll sit down with me and be like, Pastor, I'm having a really hard time. I hurt, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it all comes down to nobody will listen to me. What have I been doing for the last hour? Nobody will listen to you. 
Are you sure? Which is, am I a nobody or am I not listening? Because obviously something is not adding up in the conversation. I love how the Lord Jesus does that a little bit for them to say, look, I know your pain is real. By the way, it's not all bad though. There are good things happening to you. You might not be able to see them. You might not be able to feel them. The emotions might overwhelm you in the moment, but God is at work. There are current blessings even in the midst of it. I love how he then explains again, this just doesn't really pull any punches there in verse 10, explains, look, it's going to get worse. Behold, that, that's not a good term usually. That's the pay attention, something's happening. Behold, it's coming. But I really appreciate how even as he explains it's about to get worse, he puts a definite time limit at the end. You're, well, how, what does that mean? You're going to suffer terribly for 10 days. I think that hints at completion, totality, meaning it's going to come and it's going to be really terrible. But he actually explains it further after that. Look at the end of it. <laughs> There's a point where suffering can't chase you past. Loss and hurt and heartache and suffering and sorrow can only chase you as far as the grave. And they have to stop. Eternity is different. Be faithful unto death, even unto death. And guess what? I will give you the crown of life. Now here, this is actually, I I love, God has a wonderful sense of humor. This is a, a geography joke. Not often you get to make geography jokes in the Bible. This is a geography joke. And the geography joke that's happening here is the way that Smyrna was laid out. It was around kind of a little bit of a bay, but it had this kind of wonderful, beautiful arc uh, along the top uh, skyline. And the buildings were made symmetrically. So it looked like a crown along the top. So if you looked at the skyline of Smyrna as you came in on a boat, it looked like this beautiful crown along the top. And here Jesus is saying, look, which would you rather have? Would you rather have blessing in the crown of Smyrna? Or would you rather have the crown of life, which will never expire? Which will never fade away? Which will never tarnish? Which can never be broken? Which can never be ruined? Would you rather have it better right now for a brief time? Or would you rather have an eternity of blessing? Blessing that you cannot even fully comprehend. We're going to sing that here in just a moment when we sing 689. There's going to be a verse coming that says, uh, just remember that everything that Jesus takes away, he can more than repay. And as a kid, I always sang that and I thought, "Mm, wow, I mean, that means in this life. And I'm going, oh man, as you age, you're like, no, that's that prosperity gospel leeching in again. That he wants me to be happy and he wants me to be wealthy and he wants me everything here. No, 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 no. It may be here. I hope it's here. But it will definitely be there. It will definitely be in the life to come. In fact, actually even go so far as to kind of, that's his capstone statement in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Specifically, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You will have blessing and victory and joy for all eternity. 
And there is one problem. I mean, there's many problems, but there's one problem here. And I would suggest probably the main problem is that we're cowards. We're cowards. I'm a coward. The idea of hurting and sorrow and pain right now tends to block out my thoughts of later. I'm so prone to want to choose that momentary pleasure over eternity of delight. What do we do with a passage like this? Well, one is, I think it's important that we, we work to be comfortable with the language of pain. Work to be comfortable with the language of heartache. Work to be comfortable with the language of mourning and the language of sorrow. You realize that, that's a, a cultivated habit. It's something that, it's an acquired talent. I mean, I'll be honest with you, when I first was hired as pastor here, I was 28 years old, and the first uh, one major trip I made to the hospital um, was for a, something catastrophic. And as I wandered into the emergency room, there had just been a major gunfight in downtown Charlotte. And so I was stepping over guys who had like gunshot wounds in their belly that had not been treated yet. I'm wearing my nice fancy dress shoes with leather soles, walking through, you know, um, blood everywhere as I wade to the back to see my friend in the back of. And I, I distinctly remember going like, I have no idea what I'm doing right now. But the one thing I know is I'm in the wrong place, maybe in the wrong job. I have no idea what's happening. Go to talk with him. He had half his face torn off in an accident. What do you say? Well, you know what? It doesn't freak me out anymore. I was petrified then. I had no idea. Was going. It's a cultivated, it's a talent. It's a cultivated ability to be able to discuss comfortably what is painful. And I would suggest that for this church, one of the the things that will be very important for us as we continue to grow in grace and in Jesus Christ is to not be afraid to step into each other's heartaches. To step into each other's sorrows, to actually talk about it. I mean, that's what we're seeing with all of the sociological numbers coming out is that what they're saying is Americans are carrying unbearable sorrows in their heart everywhere and are not able to discuss it. We can't talk about it. We can't get it out. It's like, well, that's what the church is for. But the solution, though, is to not just be able to talk about it, but to be able to talk about it in one hand while we grasp the glory of King Jesus in the other. That's what the the therapy movement, the counseling movement has missed largely in America over the last 20 years is they've got the idea of we need to be able to talk about it right. The problem is, is it's missing the other ones. We need to be able to talk about while we grasp onto Christ because he's the only one that can pull us out of the pit. He's the only one that can equip us to deal with the difficulties. I remember reading a book a number of years ago. It was an argument for why we should sing hymns, and whether or not you agree, that that doesn't matter to me as much. His argument was intriguing, though. He said, hymns are the best because they sing well in hospice. And he said, you know how I know that? It's because I sang them before we buried my daughter. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
be willing to discuss, to talk about, to wade into the misery, the hurt and heartache, but at the same time clinging to the knowledge of Christ, that he knows what's going on, that he's sovereign over it all, that he's going to care for his people, that he is victorious in this life and in the life to come, and nothing can defeat him. And with that, we don't have to be afraid to walk into the heartache. Let's pray. Father, may it be that we cling to the Lord Christ. May it be that we find our comfort and our consolation in Him. We know suffering will come in this life. It is guaranteed we are under a curse. We're under your curse, and you've done a really good job. May it be as we wade through this life under the curse that we would cling to Christ Jesus, the one who conquers the curse as far as the curse is found. He's even conquered death itself. May we rejoice in him, the victor, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.